It's Stephen Henderson on the podcast today. We're going to talk with an automotive reporter about the UAW strikes of the Detroit Three automakers, the result of those strikes, which was a big win for the unions, and whether that win might translate into better luck organizing workers in non-union auto plants. If you work for Toyota or Tesla or BMW in the United States, you are unlikely to be represented by a union. Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, would like to change that. We'll talk about how likely that is to happen. And to help us answer these questions and more, we're now joined by David Strawn. He's an automotive journalist and content manager for Automoblog, where he recently wrote a piece that analyzes what the UAW's recent win could mean for non-union automakers. David, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you for having me. So I want to start with the, the, the agreements themselves. From your perspective, what makes these UAW agreements with the Detroit Three automakers particularly significant and historic? Um, well, uh, they, you know, one of the biggest things is that uh, the UAW got most of what they were asking for, and uh, on a on a much larger level, that uh, puts them in a powerful negotiating position going forward. Um, they're you know, I think a lot of it is uh, it, it's really bottom up. They've they've really prioritized uh, being able to reclassify workers and ensuring benefits for people who haven't had benefits. Of course, there's increases in pay. There's increased 401k returns, and they have also negotiated the, uh, an expanded right to hold strikes in the future. So um, I don't know if there's one thing in particular that stands out. I just think that they've they've really uh, succeeded in what in what they were after, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, they, uh, that that in and of itself, I think, is what's historic about it. So, so were you surprised by what the union was able to extract from the automakers here? I mean, there was there was significant risk, I think, in first the idea to call a strike against all three automakers, something we really haven't seen in recent history. Uh, but then also uh, the tactics that uh, UAW President Sean Fain employed in these strikes were, were, were somewhat different. Um, and, and I think there was a lot of question about how this might turn out. In the end, of course, I think you can't describe it as anything but a win uh, for the UAW, but I guess I, I'm wondering if that shocked you uh, as much as it did some other people, and and frankly shocked me as well. Uh, would I be a bad journalist if I said not at all? <laughs> um, I think no. I think uh, you know, um, th- in, in listening to what Sean Fain was saying beforehand, um, there was one the resolve that he showed um, was. You know, he he's a guy who said that we're just not going to accept anything less. And I think I tend to believe people like that when they when they say that. But if you kind of step back a little bit and, and look at look at things, one um, there is tremendous support for unions across the country. We saw a huge victory uh, with UPS earlier this year. Even Starbucks uh, is starting to see unions form in their stores. So the momentum is in the favor of unions in general, but in the auto industry in specific, one, the UAW had a really good argument, and that is basically that CEO pay has increased quite a bit, profits have increased quite a bit, but uh, worker compensation 
uh, was still lagging very far behind. So, so they had a really good argument. And on top of that, they, you know, the tactics were basically to show um, that the uh, big three needed their workers um, a lot. And, and they were able to demonstrate how much they could hit the bottom line um, for uh the big three. And I think that as soon as I've started looking at the numbers, when, you know, the potential, you know, impact came out, I said, I don't know, this is going to cost them too much to, to not give them what they want. So it, I was not surprised, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's get to the idea of what uh, these deals might mean outside the collective bargaining environment in in automaking. Uh, of course, in this country, there are several automakers who operate plants without collective bargaining agreements. And the UAW has long, of course, opposed that, but also been working real hard to try to convince workers in those plants that they would be better off if they were represented uh, by the UAW. This win against the Detroit 3 automaker seems to me like a really great uh, part of the argument that, that the UAW might make to those workers in the near future. So let's let's talk about how this deal has maybe already had an impact on non-union automakers and what might be coming in the near future. Right. Okay. So um, just uh, one day after um, there was the the uh, the final uh, tentative agreement was reached, uh, Toya, there was a um, Axios this story where they spoke to Toyota spokesman, and he confirmed that the company increased wages uh, by they're somewhere in between three dollars and three dollars and seventy cents per hour for its workers, and they of course did not mention um, the strike as being a reason for that. They just announced that they were raising wages. Um, since then, uh, we've seen Volkswagen at their Chattanooga plant in Tennessee is uh, issuing an eleven percent raise that will be that is actually now effective as of december 2023 uh nissan uh at some of their u.s manufacturing plants have increased wages by 10 percent starting in january hyundai motors um in its alabama plant is increasing wages by 25 percent by 2028 uh honda motor also has raised wages and again toyota Motor has raised wages, and Subaru uh, is announcing that it's going to raise wages for its uh, workers in Indiana. Yeah. And so th- th- these are defensive moves, right? These are these are preemptive uh, actions to try to dissuade workers in those plants from thinking that the UAW might be better for them. Is that right? I think that's probably the right read. I think that also, too, especially as you get to places like Indiana, which are just like geographically closer to where the big three are, some of that is about, you know, ensuring that you're not just going to straight up lose workers to, you know, higher paying jobs. But in general, yes, I think that that um, the, the argument that's being made from these companies is that you don't need the unions to have your your raises wage, uh, your, your wages raised. Um, but, you know, in effect, they're actually kind of making the opposite argument. And what they're saying is, is that unionization has kind of worked and has kind of gotten them these raises, <laughs> if, if indirectly. So, um, you know, who, who knows if, if it's going to work for them. But uh, I think when you hear what Sean Fain is saying, um, one of the first things that he said uh, following 
the signing of the last agreement was that they were going to be reaching out and that the next round of negotiations wouldn't just be the big three, it would be the big five or six. Um, and he specifically called out um, non-union uh, factories mm-hmm. and saying that they are not our enemies, they are our partners in this. So um, he's a determined man, and I think that there are there is a and, you know renewed spirit within uh, the auto worker community there. So um, I'm yeah. you know, interested to see where that goes. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with David Strawn. He's an automotive journalist and content manager for Automoblog. Uh, we're talking about what the UAW win against the Detroit Three Automakers could mean for non-union automakers, uh, automakers like Toyota and Tesla, BMW, who make cars in this country, but do it with workers who are not working under a collective bargaining agreement. The UAW has, of course, long opposed that and has made uh, gestures toward trying to get more of those workers uh, organized. Could these wins be a real strength in the argument that they have to make to those workers? We would love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know what you think the impact of the new agreements with the Detroit Three Automakers is going to be for workers and the auto industry. Uh, Has your opinion of labor unions changed in recent years? And in particular, this year, what do you make of the UAW's successful strike of the Detroit automakers? Uh, If so, uh, talk about what you think that means both in the short term and in the long term. And what do you think Sean Fain, who is the president of the UAW, means when he says the UAW will be at the bargaining table with the big five or the big six in five years? Of course, that is expanding that old label of big three is what we used to use to describe uh, the Detroit automakers. If there's a big five or big six, does that mean Toyota is in the fold? Does that mean... That uh, that Tesla is in the fold. Three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation. Let's start with John on the East Side. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So I'm a member of IATSE Local Thirty Eight, and uh, just a little bit, uh, we staff the entertainment venues in Detroit mm-hmm. and Metro Detroit. And the difference between our union and non-union is we have a pension and we have health benefits and we have protections. Mm. The other ones, they get cash going out the door. They don't know when their next gig is and they have no benefits to, to rely on. So that's why I'm a member of the union. I uh, think Sean Fain will go down like Walter Ruther. I think we'll see his name on buildings. <laughs> uh, I think he proved that he is a uh, a member of the union, and he's working for the members of the union. He's not in cahoots with the management from the big three, and he he made that very clear that he's not friends with them. He doesn't care. He's not going golfing with them. He's not taking golf shanks with them. So uh, I, I think that... Uh, uh, he has done all workers a favor, and mm. I, I appreciate him much. So, 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 John, I really appreciate the call and and the comments, especially from somebody who 
works, uh, you know, in uh, a, a shop that is that is uh, organized and is part of uh, part of a union. I think that's a really important perspective. Um, uh, David, I want to talk about John's point about Sean Fain and how not just how different he is from former UAW leaders, but also the departure that he marks from the recent period of leadership at the UAW, which was terribly troubled. Uh, and and I, I guess I've always been surprised that there wasn't more kind of alarmist even media coverage of the, 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 the absolute meltdown at the top uh, of, the, of the UAW, people uh, being carted off to jail uh, in some in some instances, but but I, I want to have you talk about what this new era of UAW leadership really is about and really signifies uh, with Sean Fain being so different. Well, I think from the outside, um, and I'm I'm based in North Carolina, where uh, you know I'd love to talk later about um, you know state unions here, but mm-hmm. but as from the outside, Sean Fain seems to me. Uh, like somebody with a very simple message, and that is that uh, you as the worker have power, we as workers as a collective have power, and we're going to use it to get what we want. Um, And I think that he has also done a good job of really understanding that, that there has to be an adversarial relationship between union leadership and the companies that they're negotiating with. Otherwise, what is the union there for? Um, I think that if if I were a worker that was organizing, there's there's you know there's a phrase of like you're willing to run through a brick wall for somebody, and I feel like Sean Fain, his passion, his directness, his insistence on you know getting not just pay and benefits for workers, but dignity for workers, yeah. um, I think is inspiring, and I think that he's the type of guy that people are just willing to run through a wall for. Uh, for um, I think that you know. The simplicity of his message, I think, has been what has been most effective from the outside, and I would imagine that's also been kind of what's most effective on the inside. He's he's just shown that he's willing to fight. He's he's not going to make friends with um, <clears throat> with uh, management from these companies. His uh, he had a great video where he tore up a <laughs> and uh, suggested uh, a proposal from Stellantis and tore it up and threw it in the trash on on a live stream. <laughs> I think for people who are struggling, I think they want somebody who's going to stand up for them, and I think that Sean Payne has proven over and over again that he can be that person. That he will. That he will do that. Uh, does that have uh, an effect? Do you think on this non-union environment? Uh, does this make the case in North Carolina, for instance, where you are, uh, that that collective bargaining? is is back and and has real strength and and is more attractive than it has been well i certainly hope so you know uh, i i think that uh north carolina actually has the lowest unionization rate in the entire country we're only two percent two point six percent of workers in north carolina are unionized wow um however that that there is a lot of organizing that is going on here there's a a, a group that is coming up um, very quickly called the Union of Southern Service Workers um, that has been much more active. They've they've been doing great work for a long time. Just really want to give a shout out to uh, the Durham uh, USSW and all the people there. But uh, the, they, there is a lot of 
a lot of movement in that in that uh, area. The problem is is that the laws and the politics and the culture to some degree are kind of stacked against us here. Mm-hmm. So I think that as inspired as people might be, there are a lot of obstacles to work through in North Carolina and other parts of the South. Yeah, yeah. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. I do want to talk a little about another issue that is heating up in uh, the auto industry, and that is the rise in auto loan debt. I want to talk about uh, that that crisis, uh, if, if that's the right word, and kind of what led us here and what it means to the automakers, why they are concerned about it. Uh, so, okay. So, um, yeah, I think crisis, I don't know if it's too soon to use the word crisis, but we're certainly teetering on the edge of one. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> some of the biggest factors uh, to me are um, we're seeing a almost 30 year high in uh, subprime delinquency rate. Um, so there's, there is uh, 6.1% of people in the subprime category of delinquent on their, on their uh, loans. Uh, we have average car payments are higher than they've ever been. We've got lots of people paying over $1,000 a month uh, towards their auto loan. And that's at a time that new car prices have are at record highs right now and used car prices, even though they're coming down a little bit, are still very, very high. Mm-hmm. So, the, But perhaps the, the statistic that kind of jumps out at me the most is, uh, you know, we the, the student loan debt has been a major, major topic in the news and, and for good reason. And um, in September, the Wall Street Journal reported that auto loan debt had surpassed student loan debt in total amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that to me was shocking. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that, that really hit me. So, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, that is, I mean, it is, that is absolutely shocking, right? Um, right, right. And so the, the, on the other side of this, on the lending side of this, um, you're seeing a lot of signs that uh, things are, are not looking great there. Um, there are a lot of, there's been a lot of tightening around auto loan credit. Um, and there's indications that, uh, that's just going to continue into the next year. Um, but the biggest one is that you're seeing actually some major, major lenders like dropping out of parts of the auto loan market or just like really readjusting their strategies. So in September of last year, um, Capital One announced that the bank would be really reducing the auto loans portion of their business. Mm-hmm. Um, Citizens Financial Group this year uh, said that it would be exiting the auto loans market entirely. They're a, they're an indirect lender, which is um, they're not a direct to consumer lender. They are this is when you go to a car dealership and they have like in house financing. Um, so CFB is some or CFG is uh, somebody who uh, issues these these the, the financing in, in that case. Um, and, uh, they said that this would, uh, this would be a permanent change at the time. And also in Canada, Bank of Montreal announced that it was going to shutter its indirect auto loans division. Um, so these are some major players The yeah. BMO, certainly like a, a giant group and obviously capital one, huge CFG also huge. So, um, these are businesses that are making their decisions based on forecasting and stuff like that. So I think that is a, the, a bit of a canary, or at least three canaries in the coal mine there. Yeah. You know, over the past yeah. Year. So, so it strikes me that one of the 
the drivers or the problems in that issue is the cost of new cars themselves. Uh, I was talking uh, with with uh, another uh, person here at the radio station before we went on the air about about how unusual uh, it, it is these days to even think you could buy a new car uh, because of the because they're so expensive. The loan amounts, of course, are driven by the price. Uh, is that some of the pressure? I guess that's on the automakers too. Is to is to get the prices back down to a more to a more reasonable level. Yeah, I mean, you you would think. Um, I think that the right. The, I think some of the biggest pressure is it's like you're having these two things happen at one time. Um, the new car CPI over the last let's see, I want to say two years. Has, has jumped by like 20, yeah, has jumped by 22% uh, since 2020. So uh, it's, it, it is, that's after a long, long, steady sort of slow rise in the new car CPI. And then on top of that, so on top of more expensive cars, you're having to pay more to borrow money. So it's this compounding effect where cars have just gotten much, much more expensive. Um, the thing is, demand is still very high uh, and, and people are finding ways to, to pay for this. And that's, you know, um, but at some point that that's going to come to a breaking point where there's not um, there just aren't options for it's people. unsustainable. Sure. Yeah, correct. Uh, and, and so I think that, you know, when you start seeing these major lenders pulling out, that's them perhaps seeing a future where, you know, current lending practices are just not viable anymore. Yeah. yeah. And, and for the automakers, this is, you know. That would be a major problem uh, if they if they get to a point where people just cannot afford to buy new cars. Um, obviously, that's going to be an issue, and that's going to that's going to impact like the the cost the the lack of affordability will really impact demand at some point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number. Let's go to Monte in Southfield. Monte, what's on your mind? Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me, Mr. Henderson. Sure. Um, I was a member of a strike team, uh, but it wasn't the big three. I I was part of the Screen Actors Guild strike. Oh. And, um, you know, it, it seems that the recurring concern for everyone was wages, but we had a component that was a little bit different than, than um, the workers striking with the big three, and that was the implementation, the threat of implementation of AI. You know, capturing, capturing our our image or our voice, and then reusing it um, without compensation or at um, minimal financial compensation. Mm-hmm. And I, I was sharing with your producer uh, before you taking my call that one of the unfortunate things for our industry is that the the general myth among the public is that. The strike was about a bunch of, you know, high-paid Hollywood actors whining that they weren't being paid enough, which mm-hmm. really is not true. Um, the majority yeah, most of people make actors, much less, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, the, the majority of actors across the country um, statistically make less than $5,000 a year. Wow. And the good majority, about, you know, maybe 20000 over the course of 12 months, but that's not a sustainable living for most actors so it, it's done out of love but when it's done it, it should be done so at a compensation that's fair and equitable yeah 
uh, Monte, I, I, I really do appreciate the, the call and that perspective as well as it, as we've been saying. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of labor action this year, and and the the, the actor strike, uh, the actors guild strike, the writer strike. Uh, were, were, were two of them as well. Um, you know, uh, David, I wonder, uh, we're going to run out of time in, a, in just a few minutes, but if you can talk about, I guess, the implications beyond auto for what uh, the UAW has has achieved. Uh, uh, the, the, the Screen Actors Guild victory was, uh, was significant as well. I think we are seeing strikes in lots of other places here uh, in Detroit, is this, I guess, a, a, a significant labor moment beyond just just auto? I think that there is absolutely no doubt about that. I think that we are um, we're seeing record high support for labor unions in the country right now. Um, we are the the UAW did a great job of grabbing headlines. That the, the SAG uh, after strike absolutely did a wonderful job of getting their message out, and we're just seeing a wave of support for unions in the U S. Um, and I think that again, um, the, the sort of the resilience of the UAW workers and, and SAG and the writers guild and, um, the resilience and the, the sort of commitment that they showed, uh, not just to the cause, but sort of to each other. Um, I think, you know, I feel like it would be hard to see that and not feel inspired. Yeah. Um, and I think as, as somebody who comes from a state where unionizing is, is difficult by design, <laughs> um, I, I, I think that uh, it, it is empowering to see what the UAW is able to gain um, and to see what other union unionization efforts around the country and, and strikes and everything have been able to gain. So um, it is uh, very difficult but not impossible to unionize in the South and other parts of the country that aren't as, aren't as uh, hospitable to that. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Uh, so people who want to um, form unions uh, have a, a, a tough road ahead, but it's not impossible. And I think that um, seeing the victories of the UAW and other unions this year is, is it, it gives a lot of hope and, and it really um, negates a lot of the arguments that, that employers are, are making to, uh, yeah. to workers that they don't need the unions or that they, they won't benefit from unions. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, David Strawn of Automoblog. Great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. I'd love to come back anytime you want to have me. Yeah, yeah. Today's episode of Detroit Today was produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Nate Bender. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Editing and mixing is by Connor Anderson. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Our podcast manager is David Lyons, and our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET Public Radio. If you love the conversations we have on Detroit Today, consider donating to WDET, the public radio station in Detroit that we call home. If you want to be a part of the conversation and call in, you can listen live every day on WDET.org or on the WDET mobile app. Or if you live in Southeast Michigan and still love listening to good old-fashioned radio like me, tune in to 1019 FN.